What is your calling? What is your calling? And you know, you can ask somebody, what number are you calling? What, I'm talking about like in your life. What's your calling? What's the calling that God's put on your life? And you don't have to answer. I don't expect you to. I kind of don't want you to because, you know, who knows how far down that rabbit hole we're going to get. But we can talk about that on Wednesday night. Um, but what is, what is your calling? What is the calling that God has put on your life? I, I want us each to just kind of think about that. And if, and if we don't have an answer just right off the top of our, of our heads, if it's not on the forefront of our minds to where I ask that question or you hear someone ask you that question and you have to answer it, then this is a great opportunity to sort of get in that mode and to see yourself as being a person who is on a mission, who is on mission. We each have a calling from God, and there are some things that are true regardless of who you are, man, woman, young, old, healthy, unhealthy, rich, poor, it doesn't matter who you are. There are some similarities. There are some things that we all have been called to if you are in Christ. If the gospel has been proclaimed to you, if you have believed it, if God has opened up your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your heart to be changed, to understand, and, and you believe, then God doesn't just leave you there. He puts a calling on your life to do something with that. He has called you for a purpose. He has not just called you to exist. And so the question is, what is that calling? And if you don't know that calling generally, then you probably also don't know it specifically because each of us do have a different calling when it comes to the particulars of what it looks like. There are similarities that all of us can have that we all can partner together with. And then there are some things that you have skills that I don't. You have opportunities and you know people that I don't. God has done something purposefully to bring you to faith so that you can accomplish a particular purpose for him in your life. And that thing is not something that I can accomplish for you. It's not something that I can accomplish on your behalf. It's something that God has called you to. And so what is that for you? Oftentimes, we come to faith. We lead people to faith. We encourage people to live by faith. But we never encourage them to the point of understanding that they have been called by God to do something, to be somebody to accomplish his purpose on this earth, and they never spend the time to figure out what that is. And, and, and you're not going to hear me saying today, as we go through Acts 25 and 26, that you have to know the exact time and day of everything that you're supposed to do for the rest of your life. Okay? I'm not saying that God is going to reveal to you every minute detail of the rest of your life, and you should already have that figured out. Because that's totally not true. When we read Jeremiah chapter 1, it wasn't true for him. He just said, hey, here's some general things that are going to happen. Like you're going you're gonna to be, you're going to suffer for my name, but I've called you and I'm going to protect you. And I've given you my word and I'm going to continue giving my word. And when I give it, you better give it to those who I'm sending you to go talk to. And if you don't, 
Like, trouble's going to come upon you. Because I expect you to obey the calling that I've put on your life. And it could just kind of see Jeremiah when we read that earlier in Jeremiah chapter 1. Say, but I'm just a youth. I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't have the skills. I don't have the prominence. People aren't going to look at me and say, oh, yeah, we should listen to him. No, they're going to say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy's not old enough. This guy hasn't gone through all the schooling that he's supposed to go through. And God said, I don't care about all that. I am going to equip you to accomplish my purpose. And so for Jeremiah, it was a question, do you trust him to do that? And when we look at Paul, he gives just our last encounter in Acts of Paul's journey that he goes on in his life to get to the point where he is now trying to appeal to his innocence, trying to appeal to those around him and say, believe. I have been put here in this position for this particular purpose so that you might come to know Jesus Christ and be known by him. Paul understood the calling that was on his life and he actively obeyed that calling. I think it's an opportunity for us as we read here these couple chapters consider for ourselves, not just to say, oh, that's great, you know, oh, I can read this book about this missionary, and they did so many good things over in China, and great and wonderful, or, or this guy in Acts 25 and 26 who's on trial for his faith, and, you know, he doesn't back down, oh, that's so great, I'm so glad that God has put all these people in history who have done all of these marvelous and wonderful things that have been recorded, and that they have been obedient to the calling that God has put on their life. But we so often stop short of seeing ourselves as having been called by God for a particular purpose. And so what does that look like for you? Let's read Acts 25 and 26. It's going to take a minute. So. Acts 25, starting in verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province... He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. (coughs) Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong with about the man, let them bring charges against him. So again, I'd have to give this recap every time. So where we are in Acts 25 is Paul has come back from his third missionary journey. He's given money to the church and to the people there in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. He's purifying himself in the temple. Some Jews from Asia say, hey, that's the Paul who stirred up everyone everywhere against the temple and against God and against the Jews and against everything we stand for. And so they mob rush him and the Roman guy on site saves him and then paul says hey you guys should listen to me and then they try to kill him again because he said he was going to preach to the gentiles and then the roman guy saves him again and he's like what's wrong with you and he's like well i'm a roman citizen and the roman guy's like okay well we need to send you before felix and 
He gets sent before Felix, and Felix says, well, doesn't look like there's much wrong with you, but I'm not willing to let you go free because you haven't paid me any money. And Paul's like, well, I guess I'll just be here rotting in prison for two years. So Paul's been in prison for two years for no reason. He has been declared innocent by Felix, and Felix has just kind of kept him as his little, you know, spiritual puppet, you know, just, hey, I want to hear some more fascinating things about Scripture. And so Paul comes in and talks to him ever so often. And then finally Felix is dismissed from his post, um, has to answer to some horrible things in, uh, in Rome. Um, and then we have Festus come on the scene. And so Paul, who's already been declared innocent by the guy in Jerusalem who saved Paul's life, and declared innocent by Felix, the guy who's over the entire province of Jerusalem and Judea, now, for a third time, he goes before this Festus, a new character. And so what's going to happen? So verse 6, pick it back up there in chapter 25. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense... Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as I stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Let me just go ahead and kind of give 
the scoop of, of what's happening here in, in chapter 25, because we're going to really focus on chapter 26. So, again, Felix has left Paul in custody for two years. Festus replaces Felix. All right. Festus goes to Jerusalem to go say, hey, to, you know, to learn about who the people are in charge of the Jews, who are the people he's over. And so he meets the chief priests and the leading uh, religious people in Jerusalem. And they say, even immediately, two years after the trial that Felix gave in chapter 24, the first thing it seems that the Jews had to give for Festus to do for them was to try and charge Paul with something legitimate. What was on their mind still two years later We hate Paul. We need to see this guy go. And so they said, hey, why don't you bring him down to Jerusalem? And really their plan was, hey, we're just going to ambush him and kill him on the way so that we don't have to worry about him anymore. Partially because they knew that any legitimate charge that they had to bring against him was nothing. That they had no legitimate charge. There was no legitimate excuse. And so they were like, well... You know, we're not going to get, find a guilty verdict, so we'll just kill him on the way. And Festus didn't really have any idea that that was happening from what it tells us. But he said, no, I mean, he's in Caesarea, and I'm going back to Caesarea. You come down and make charges against him. So they do, and Festus is like, this ain't nothing. I mean, y'all can't prove any of this. This doesn't make any sense. So what Festus does is he says, hey, Paul, okay, I don't find anything wrong with you concerning Roman stuff, but for whatever reason, trying to do the Jews a favor is what it tells us, is what Luke tells us. Trying to do the Jews a favor. He says, why don't I just take you to Jerusalem and you can be tried there? And Paul's like, that's the last place I want to be tried. I'm not going to get a fair trial there. If that's the best you can do, and that's the next option you're going to send me to, I know what's going to happen. They're going to do to me what they did to Jesus. They've already done to me what they've done to Jesus, except for actually kill me. And so instead, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so Festus is like, okay, well, if you appeal to Caesar, then I guess I'll send you to Caesar. And so in chapter 27, we'll see him finally going to Rome. But then we have King Agrippa and Bernice come down. So Agrippa and Bernice are brother-sister Agrippa is actually Herod Agrippa, so he is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, so we're about to come into Christmas season, right? So who is it that when we celebrate Jesus coming as a child, who tries to kill Jesus, saying that, oh no, there's another king on the scene that I need to get rid of, that's Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa's great-grandfather. It's a very messed up family. Agrippa and Bernice, again, like I said, were brother and sister. They were probably doing more than brother and sister should do with one another. Um, That's the story in history of what's happening. Bernice ends up being a woman to one of the future emperors past Nero. And since she's a Jew, basically they have to end that relationship because an emperor shouldn't be hanging out with a Jew. Um, But Bernice ends up going all the way to the top of Roman society. As it stands. So this is a bit about Agrippa and Bernice. So Agrippa comes and he's kind of over some of Galilee and some uh, 
Gentile districts around Judea. So he's not nearly as powerful and has as much under his command as his grandfather or great-grandfather would have had. And so that's why he's coming down to see Festus, the new guy in town, to say, hey, here we are. We're sort of, you know, buddy-buddy. I want to make sure that we all get along with each other. And that's why Agrippa's there. And Agrippa's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of this Paul. I want to see something from him. You'll see a lot of ties between Paul's trial, between Agrippa and Festus, and between Pilate and Herod when Jesus is on trial. A lot of similarities. Oh, I want to hear. I'm interested to see what this guy has to do. Maybe he'll show a sign. Maybe he'll do something spectacular. And so that's what we get. And now Paul is going to give his testimony, as it were, in chapter 26. So, verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Agrippa, again, would be familiar with all these things because he is himself a Jew. And he was the one who was given authority by Rome to actually put in charge to designate who the high priest was going to be for the Jewish people. So he was legitimately familiar with Jewish things. And so what Paul says is not a bunch of pomp and circumstance. It is the truth. Verse 4. Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So once again, we have a a Roman authority who is, not willing, who is not willing to go against the Jews. Festus himself says, look, you're free and clear. I don't see anything wrong when it comes to the Roman law for which to charge you or to hold you. But the problem is, I'm over these Jewish people. And if I make them mad from the get-go, it's going to be trouble for my Rain. It's going to be trouble for my judiciousness. Like, I, I want things to be easy. And so that, mean, that meant hardship for Paul. And, and so we have Paul, once again, defending himself. And so, let's go back to the beginning of, of chapter 26. And Agrippa says, all right, Paul, you've got the floor. And Paul says, thank you. Here's my background. Here's where I've been. All the Jews know me. They've known where I've come from. They've known what I've learned. They've known my background. I have not come from a corner somewhere. I've been in front of all these people in the past. They know my life. I was a part of the strictest party of our religion. I was a Pharisee. And why I'm standing here before you now is because of the hope that I have that's the same hope that all of our people have. What I'm arguing for in my defense is everything that you should be familiar with. Everything that these Jews should be familiar with. Like, it's what all of our tribes have hoped to attain. They worship For this reason, and really when it comes down to it, why should it be so strange that God can raise somebody from the dead? You know this to be in Moses and the prophets. This is not a new idea. This is an Old Testament concept. Being raised from the dead was not unique to Jesus. God did it in the Old Testament. God told the prophets it was going to happen. In the Old Testament. This is not new news. So why is it that we are acting like this is some strange 
weird thing. I mean, but even so, like, I didn't think Jesus was the man to bring about this. And so I myself persecuted the church. I persecuted these Christians. I traveled with legitimate papers from the high priest, from the chief priest, to go and to whip these people in the synagogue and to go to Damascus to bring back and to jail and to kill these Christians. I didn't think Jesus was this answer initially. But then on my way to Damascus, at midday, a light shone. They saw, they heard, but they didn't clearly understand what was happening, those people that were with me. But you know what, what's interesting, what's kind of funny, if, you know, in the accounts that we've been given so far, and this is the third one of Paul's conversion experience, his road to Damascus experience. Do you ever think about the fact that even though they just thought maybe it was thundering whenever Jesus spoke, that they didn't really intelligibly understand what Jesus was saying, that they understood what Paul was saying? Like, why would they not have understood what Paul was saying? I mean, they, they, they saw a great light. They didn't see Jesus, though. They just, they just saw a great light. They heard some things happening from that light, but they didn't know exactly what it was. But they knew Paul, and they could hear Paul. Paul was right there with them. And so clearly Paul is saying things back and forth to this thundering voice, and he's giving us another account of what he communicated to it. Who are you, Lord? What am I supposed to do? What's going on? Paul didn't make this stuff up. Again, they knew him as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult, as a young man. They knew him as one who was persecuting the church. Some of these very people were with him when he was transformed on that road to Damascus. And what is the commission that Jesus gives to Paul, even right then and there, from the beginning? Verse 16 of chapter 26, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes. Now, Okay, so this is Paul's commission. We asked at the beginning, what is the calling that God has put upon your life? Well, let's at least answer the question, what is the calling that God has put on Paul's life? So the calling that God has put on Paul's life is to be a witness to the things in which he has seen and which he will see. To be a servant and a witness. To open the eyes of the people to which he is called to go to. This is a constant refrain that you'll hear from me because you see it all throughout scripture. There is a cooperation that is happening that is expected from us as Christians with God. And how he works in this world. God can do things all by himself. He does not need us to accomplish his purposes. But the clear and explicit, constant 
witness in Scripture is that he does choose to use us to accomplish his purposes. He speaks through us. He gives us his word so that we can then proclaim that word to other people so that their eyes can be opened. But what he says here to Paul is he says, I'm sending you to open their eyes. So is God the one who opens people's eyes or is it Paul? I mean, according to just the exact language that's being used, God is sending him and Paul's supposed to open their eyes. How is it that Paul can open their eyes? Does Paul have the spiritual power in and of himself to be able to open people's eyes and ears to see and to hear and their hearts to be transformed to understand the gospel? Paul, in and of himself, no. But the whole point is God is the one who is sending him to do it. God is the one who is empowering him to do it. But it is Paul's job, his commission, his calling to open their eyes. When you see the, the rebuttal that Agrippa has to Paul's question. When Paul says, Agrippa, do you believe? I know that you believe. You have the prophets. You have Moses. You're familiar with this stuff. You believe, right? I know that you believe. And Agrippa's like, would you persuade me? That's what he says, right? In such a short time, this is verse 28, would you persuade me to be a Christian? What is Paul doing even here and now as he's telling this story? He's persuading. He is using reason, logic, Everything at his disposal, true and rational words. This is not just some random story. These are very true and real and discoverable truths. True and rational words. You you think I'm going mad, Festus. I'm not going mad. My learning has not driven me to the point of being unable to speak coherently. I mean, you know, any earlier, you know, it's like, you know, like you have to learn how to teach kindergartners. You know, let's all say it together. Like, like I'm able to teach in such a way to where the smallest, the most unlearned people, the, the least of these can understand. Those who have no education, who have no background in anything, who have no religious knowledge, the Gentiles who are furthest away from God. I'm speaking so that they can understand. Like a little child in their learning, they know because I have crafted my words in such a way that they can understand the message. And then you're talking about kings and emperors and those of high esteem, those of the academic upper echelon of the world at the time in Athens. I can converse with them. I can argue and debate and Reason with them. Persuading them to believe. I can go to that extreme. I can go the greatest and the highest of them. Whichever way it goes, I have been called to proclaim the truth. I have been sent to open their eyes. So that though being in darkness, they can now be in the light. Though... They have been under the power of Satan. They now can be under the power of God. So that I can grant them forgiveness of sins? No. 
that they may receive another divine passive. Like, so God can give them, offer them, grant them forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What is this message? This message is just that. I mean, as he's giving his defense, he is just very simply proclaiming the gospel. This is what it means. I have been sent to evangelize. I have been sent to disciple. I have been sent to proclaim the gospel. And so, Agrippa, wonderful, fantastic king that you are, I have obeyed this calling, this vision, this commission that God has given to me. And so I, and I started immediately. Whenever I got to Damascus, I was still blind. But as soon as my eyes were opened, as soon as I was given opportunity, I proclaimed the gospel in Damascus. Then in Jerusalem, after I escaped narrowly through a wall in Damascus, then I went to Jerusalem and I proclaimed the gospel there. And then throughout all the region of Judea, And then as I went on my missionary journeys out to the far reaches of Gentile society. And what did I proclaim to them? That they should repent and turn to God. When we we proclaim the gospel, what are we calling people to do? And what are we expecting of them when they believe? Sometimes... We can err on the side of having no expectations on someone who professes faith. And sometimes we can err on the side of thinking that it is actions that bring about faith. Or actions that are what bring forgiveness. There's some sort of earning of salvation. And so we can err on the side of not expecting people to do anything with the faith that they say they profess and believe. And then we can say, well, you can only have faith if you have done something in the first place. And what Paul says here is he says, look, if you have repented and turned to God, if you've turned away from Satan and this world and sin, and you have turned to God and faith and trust in him and his son, You are going to perform deeds in keeping with that repentance. If you truly have believed, there is going to be evidence that a change has occurred in your life. So when I send out, you know, a questionnaire to try and see, okay, do you want to be a member of Divine Church? I ask questions so as to try and gauge as much as I can. Has your life changed at all? You say you believe in God, but what's different now than was how you were living before. If there's no difference, I don't, I don't know that I can, with my eyes, my ears, my understanding, be able to say, yes, you are a Christian. Because, I mean, according to what Paul says here, that if you repent and turn to God, like, you're going to perform deeds in keeping with that repentance. You're going to Be obedient to the calling that God has put on your life to honor him, to love him, and to love other people. And and, and even in just doing that, that's the reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Just because I'm saying, look, turn from 
all that you have known and all that you have trusted and all that you believe to this point and turn to Jesus. And because of that, they tried to kill me. And the only reason that I've been able to survive up until this day is because I have had the help that comes from God. God has said, I'll protect you. I will be with you. And I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to allow you to stop. I'm not going to allow other people to stop you until you have accomplished the very purpose for which I have sent you. And so he has helped me. And so I'm standing here today, even now, testifying to everyone who's listening in the audience and to these kings who are up in their pomp and circumstance. Doesn't matter who it is. All that I'm saying is everything that has been already said in the law and the prophets. And the prophets and Moses. That what they said would come to pass has come to pass. That the Messiah was going to suffer and rise from the dead. And that he himself would proclaim light to his own people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42.6, Isaiah 49.6. Explicitly, Isaiah has prophesied that he has sent his suffering servant to proclaim light to the Gentiles, to the nations, to all the nations, to the Jews and the Gentiles. And yet they haven't believed. And it's clear that many people don't want to believe. Many people just have no concept to be able to understand any of what this is, ha- what is happening. And that's where we find Festus. He's like, I, Paul, like you're mad because I'm a smart guy and I have no idea what the world you're talking about. Right? I think that's why he says that. Like, Paul, you're not making any sense to me. And I think I'm a pretty smart guy. And so you must be just speaking incoherently. And Paul's like, no, Festus. Look, just look to your side and just ask Agrippa. He understands what's happening. He knows what I'm talking about. All this stuff has not been hidden in some corner somewhere where no one has been able to see it. No one's been able to ascertain the facts of the matter. And I'm speaking to you true and rational words. I'm not crazy. The king knows these things. Agrippa, right? You believe these things, right? And Agrippa's put in a hard spot because, you know, if he were to say, oh, yeah, I believe. Well, what are the Jews going to think of him now? Is he going to say in front of his friends, in front of the people under him, that he was wrong and that this guy in chains is right? Right? I mean, that takes a level of humility that almost no one in the world has ever gotten to. In that moment, he's given an opportunity to believe, to profess faith. And he just kind of skirts around the question. He says, in the last 15 minutes in hearing you, you, you think that all of a sudden, I'm going to be persuaded to, to believe the things that you have said. And, and he says, 
Paul says, I mean, look, not just you, but everyone who's listening. Like, I want you to be as I am. I mean, I don't want you to be a prisoner. I don't want these chains that I have to be on YouTube, but I want you to believe the way that I believe. I want you to understand and live according to the calling that God has put on your life, not the calling that you have given yourself. Not the calling that this world has put on you that you believe the lies of. And it's just kind of left at that. And so this is a, you know, this is a great story, right? Oh, yeah, great. You know, Paul defended himself and Paul made this great argument in front of all these people who were really learned and had all the power. I mean, you see where it got him. Nowhere. Well, I mean, Rome is where it's going to get him. But he was still in chains. He's about to get shipwrecked. He's about to get bit by a snake and seemingly almost die. And he doesn't. He's still got a lot of hard times ahead of him. And it's great for us to read this and to see, oh, man, oh, Paul, you are amazing. Maybe one day I can be like Paul. Okay, well... I mean, I, I had that aspiration once. And, and in some regards, I still do because there's so much boldness here that I would just love the ability to articulate the faith in the moments like Paul does, no matter who it is, no matter the circumstance. I would love that, but so often we leave these stories as just great history, and we never come around to where how how does this how does this deal with me in my life now? And so, what is the calling that God has put on your life? Well, generally, it's the same calling that He put on the disciples. It's the same calling that He put for the prophets, for Isaiah, for Jeremiah, for Ezekiel. For Paul, where we have those explicitly recorded for us. And what he has called us to as Christians, I mean, just look at each of the Gospels. Each of the Gospel accounts, it ends the same way. And I don't, there is just no way for me to believe that the calling that God, that Christ himself put on the disciples before he ascended to the Father, after he was raised from the dead, was only meant for those disciples then and there. There's just no way. Because if that is true, if the calling that God, that Christ Jesus himself gave to the disciples in Matthew 28 and in Mark 16 and in Luke 24 and in John 20, if all of those, when Jesus says, I am sending you, I am telling you to go, go and make disciples, Proclaim the gospel to all nations. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. When he says those things in the gospels that are recorded for us, they aren't just commissions in history. They are commissions for us. And if they are just commissions in history then I think we would be left wondering, 
what is meant for us? What are we supposed to do? But I think no matter the instance that you have that we're given, whether from Jesus himself or from the apostles themselves and the, throughout the New Testament, we have been called to live lives of faith. We have been called to live lives of going and proclaiming the gospel. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, he's writing a letter to people all throughout the Roman Empire. And he says, look, I, don't be afraid of all the trouble that's going to come upon you. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Like, be able to explain to people, why are you so different? Why are you not worried about all the elections that are about to happen? Why are you not worried about the persecution that you've seen your family go through and your friends go through? Why are you not worried about the fact that no one cares about what you're talking about? Because God has opened my eyes to see and my ears to hear and my heart to understand. And my hope is not in me and in my understanding. My hope is in the Lord who has given me that understanding. My, my hope is in Jesus who has freed me from sin and death. Because I know that if I have done wrong and I have done wrong, that someone's got to pay. And I so would rather it not be me. And the, the grace in the midst of the gospel is the fact that it doesn't have to be me anymore. I don't have to pay for my sin. Jesus has done that. I mean, what a glorious truth. And I can live in freedom now. Not freedom to do whatever I want and live however I want, but live according to how God has made this world, how God has designed this world. And even though sin has broken that, and we all experience that brokenness, God gives us the opportunity to repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, to repent and believe in the gospel. And as we live in light of that gospel, we are able to recover and pursue living according to God's design, loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. And I have been sent, you have been sent, To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And we're not doing this on our own. He has sent us, and He is with us as He sends us. And so, one of the things that we encourage and that we expect here in this church, you know, those three words gospel, community, mission. We send each other out on mission. We send each other out on mission to do what? Like, what is our mission? Well, you just go back to the start. To proclaim the gospel. What is our mission? To proclaim the gospel. To live out the gospel. To live in the gospel. To love Jesus and to show other people the love of Jesus. And to build each other up in that love and in faith. To know that, hey... 
this doesn't look so great. This, where's your heart at when you do this? Hey, this is awesome. How did you do that? Teach me. Help me to live by faith the way that you're living by faith. How have you overcome this stuff? Pray for me. Help me. And then we go outside of ourselves and we proclaim it to those around us. And so there is at the least a general calling that God has put on each and every one of us as his disciples. To go and make disciples, to proclaim. We have each been sent. We, all of us, every single one of us, if you are a Christian, you are called to live a life on mission. And then I think it's worthwhile to spend some time, if you have not, to ask God, what in particular does this look like for me? How can I live this out faithfully? If you have not answered that question, that is not a license to be able just to sit there and wait, number one, because you still have the calling that God's put on your life generally. God has called you to go and to make disciples. And so, look, if, if you're not sure that that's, this is the avenue through which you're supposed to do it, just start walking down that road. And if it's not supposed to be what God's call is on your life in particular, then he'll branch it off and put you somewhere else. He'll make a new artery for you for that thing to flow through. Right? I mean, you know, this is how it's supposed to happen, but this is how I think it's going to happen. This is how it happens for other people, but maybe not for me. Maybe I am called to go somewhere to a foreign country and to learn a new language and to be a witness there. Maybe I am just called to be here where I've grown up, where I've been all my life, and to proclaim the gospel here. Because there's a need for that. And maybe I'm called to go some, to some other state, some other place, to go and proclaim the gospel and to love God and to love those people around me. Maybe I'm supposed to serve kids. Maybe I'm supposed to minister to students. Maybe I'm supposed to minister to old people. Maybe I'm just supposed to minister to the people who are my own age. God has gifted and called each of us. And so what's it, what's it for you? But don't let the fact that if you don't have the ability to answer that question explicitly to the minute details. Yes, God has called me to go move to this nation and to <laughs> proclaim the gospel to this people group. And to do it in two years and to live there for ten years. Like... You don't have to have all the answers. And rarely does God give you all those answers at the beginning. But be faithful to what God has called you to and the general things that you do know. And we exist as a church to encourage one another to do that. And if we aren't doing that and we're not encouraging one another to do that, to go live lives on mission to be sent as God has sent us, as God has sent Paul, as God has sent 
the disciples, as God has sent us, his people. If we're not faithful to that, why would we ever think that he's going to entrust us with the greater things? Why would we ever assume that he has something more awesome and more wonderful if we can't obey the basics? And he can, and he, and, and he does with some people. But don't give yourself a way out from the beginning. Because then, unfortunately, you might be left, like we mentioned with Paul, where he says, you know, I'm calling people to repent and turn to God. And if you really have repented and turned to God, you're going to keep... Your deeds are going are to keep that. It's going to be in lock and step with that. And so what is, what, is God, what is God focusing you on? If that's not what gets you up in the morning and keeps you going in the difficulties of this life and what you're able to look back to when the good things happen, we, there are still parts of us that are living under the power of Satan and the darkness of this world that God just does not want to continue on that way. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to to assess um, the calling that you've put on each of our lives. Don't let us walk away from here um, still wondering. There's, there's plenty that I've jumbled through and that I've probably not explained well at all. And so I just pray f- for clarity. I, I pray that you would give each of us Minds and hearts that do understand the calling that you have put on each of us and help us to spend time diligently searching, allowing your spirit to speak to us on what the particular calling is that you have put on each of our lives and and how we can be faithful to that. The people that you've called us to reach that you've gifted us to and that you empower us to. Lord, make that known to us. And even if you don't, help us to live and to walk by faith, trusting you in every moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.